Welcome to Wilma's podcast series with this edition of In Case You Missed It, highlights from the Western Occupational Health Conference Walk 2020, Inspire and Interact, held virtually from September 24th to the 26th, 2020. Wilma is a Western Regional Component of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. The Wilma Education Committee members involved in planning this podcast have no relevant financial relationships to disclose, and neither does our speaker. Welcome to Testing for SARS-CoV-2, Understanding Analytic and Clinical Crossover. Dr. Christine O is an anatomic and clinical pathology board-certified pathologist with a subspecialization in hematopathology. After completing residency, Dr. O practiced as a general anatomic and hematopathologist for 10 years before becoming the medical director of a lab in a roughly 550-bed hospital with a level 2 trauma center, OBGYN center, oncology center, and busy emergency department. Providence Regional Medical Center Everett cared for the first COVID-19 patient in the United States, and Dr. O and the lab team were highly involved. After a brief lull following the patient's discharge, the site became one of the first areas in the country to experience a surge in COVID-19 cases in March 2020. Here are a few take-home points from this live question and answer session with audience members. So, um, you know, we had some questions in regards to all of that, and especially when it comes to like you know, we talk, we think a lot about false negatives, but there is some concern about false positives. And you touched upon that a little bit. Can you go over that a little bit in more detail again um, about the issue? Of what, when should we consider that it's a possibility of a false positive? Depends on the testing modality. So for PCR, I would say it's, it's quite rare outside of pre and post analytic error, basically. Most labs and most high throughput labs that you're sending your testing to for PCR testing have single cartridge tests where a patient sample goes into a single cartridge. So there's not a lot of risk of carryover. There have been cases where has been reported in the news where, you know, a cluster of people had a false positive. I think that is uh, something you have to think about if it completely doesn't make sense. And, okay. and I, that certainly happened in our case. Somebody in western Montana, before there was an outbreak, no travel history, no contact history, came back with a positive COVID test and it was like, it is a false positive. And uh, we had a cluster and I think we think there was some carryover or some pre or post analytic error in that circumstance. And that person didn't have any symptoms, you're saying? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, the next question is uh, really pertains to utility of stool testing. So uh, there are reports of the use of stool testing for COVID-19 to serially monitor prevalence of COVID-19 spread in counties, for example, New York City. Uh, as businesses, including schools and universities, uh, plan to reopen based on sensitivity and cost effectiveness. Um, is there a utility of serial st- stool testing for monitoring in, in an occupational setting? You know, that's a really interesting question because when those studies first came out, I thought, oh, who thought of this? <laughs> but but it, is a, it would be a very interesting epidemiologic study. I can't speak to the cost effectiveness, but I've seen at least 20 to 30 articles in the preprint literature about uh, monitoring through stool testing. And it's an interesting thought because it will show up, but I think that's also a long lag, right? Because uh, viral shedding in the stool can, can go out like 20 or 30 days 
and the person is probably not infectious. They probably are only infectious for 10 of those days, if that. So it, the curve would really be offset. It would be looking at data from 20 days previous in terms of the lead wave of the infection. When it comes to asymptomatic surveillance testing and screening testing, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of options out there. And you talked about antigen testing possibly being one of those options. What would you recommend as a frequency of the testing? You know, some people say, you know, maybe it should be every couple of days, some every week. It doesn't (laughs) seem like there's a standard on that. So I will say, if you think about it, the optimal, the optimal choice would be to do daily testing on everybody, right? If you could and you had infinite time, money, and healthcare resources, you would do daily testing on everybody because then the, the spike in viral antigen goes up pretty quickly when you get infected. So if you get tested at 8 o'clock every morning, then even if your spike goes up overnight, you will only be exposing 24 hours worth of people. <laughs> And then you would catch it and and you say, all right, you have to be quarantined and your contacts have to be quarantined, right? That is not possible uh, at the current time and it will never probably be possible. So I think, uh, and I discussed, there's a lot of modeling papers about what's the optimal interval and um, when can you do this? You know, I think in, in some high importance uh, workplaces, um, you know, I think you would want to test as much as you possibly could. We, we got approached by a company that prints ballots for voting. It's not a big company, you know, but it, it makes something that's very important for our country coming up soon, and they can't really afford to have people gone. So I think those are, you know, there's a lot of socioeconomic tie-ins to that. And as I mentioned, you know, screening is great as long as people actually listen to your quarantine orders. I want to ask you one quick question here, if there's any clinical relevance of IgA versus IgG levels and protection against um, infections. So IgA is interesting. It, it goes up sort of early-ish, probably by day 11, most people have a response, and then it decreases after day 20. And there is data to show that the levels of IgA are proportional to severity of disease, but it's not as pronounced as that finding in IgG. That's number one. Number two is neutralization is might be a little bit better um, with the IgA versus IgG in a petri dish, in you know in a an ex vivo setting, and that's interesting. The problem is there are not actually a lot of commercial tests that test for IgA. You know, I mean, I think the science will have to bear this out. If it becomes evident that it's hugely um, useful, then probably they'll start making those tests. But right now, they're, they're very limited assays that even look at IgA. And I will say, I did see a paper which looked at uh, IgA in convalescent plasma, which is usually collected like 30 days after the patient got ill. And um, there just wasn't a lot of IgA in there. Thank you, Dr. O. We're right out of time. And Um, We have learned about a lot about testing and that it continues to be an evolving issue. And so thanks for condensing that information and just highlighting the most important things we need to know. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we'd like to invite you to explore more. You'll find our current library at www.woema.org and encourage you to subscribe to the WOMA podcast channel wherever you find your favorite podcast or podcast listening. You'll be notified as new podcasts become available. Subjects could include the latest clinical update, emerging treatments in medicine, or topics in public and environmental health. 
Stay tuned and don't miss out. And join us for Walk 2021 from September 29th to October 2nd in Phoenix, Arizona.